Well, good morning, church. How is everyone this morning? It is wonderful to see you all, uh, to be able to worship with you all, uh, to share in God's word with you all as well. I want to welcome those that are joining us in Wills Point this morning, also those joining us online. We're glad that you are with us as well. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be uh, continuing on in the book of James. Uh, We've started this study about three weeks ago now, and uh, we'll have several weeks to go. But looking forward to our teaching this morning, but it's also a teaching that um, can be very heavy in a way. James, very early on in his letter to the early believers uh, of the way, the early Christian church, uh, before the uh, New Testament has been written, as we learned a couple weeks ago in introduction, that this this becomes the first letter to the church. But James very quickly in his writing, he, he, he gets kind of in, in a way in people's, right in their space, uh, steps on their toes, so to speak. Uh, and for you and I, it can even exist for us today as he encourages us with his word, but he also can admonish, admonish many of us in his word as well and what he has for us. Uh, but last week we, uh, we looked at a portion of scripture where we came to a point where uh, we see in verse 16 that um, we can become deceived. The idea there that, that was conveyed is in that particular deception is that it comes from the enemy, is that we do experience trials and suffering in this life. Um, through the course of those trials and that suffering, we can also come to a point where we experience temptation. But, but James makes this point that the temptation that we experience isn't something that comes from God. Though God uses trials and sufferings, and God also might institute in many ways trials in our lives in order to bring about maturity in us. He's not the one that tempts us in any way. That temptation comes from the enemy. And we find in verse 16, when James says, do not be deceived, the idea is that Satan, our enemy, is the one that is the accuser. He's the father of lies. He's the one that will deceive you and I. But as James continues on from that thought into our text for this morning, we find, though, that as much as the enemy can deceive you and I, you and I are very capable on our own of deceiving ourselves. So the title of the teaching this morning is Who's Deceiving Who? And it's important for you and I as believers to settle ourselves on that understanding of where deception can come from. And it can, in reality, come from two different places. The enemy, yes, but also we can be deceived ourselves. But now let's find out why. But I want to start at verse 16 and grab a hold of some of that that context, some of that truth as we move forward uh, with what James has to say for us. So In James chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, James does say this. He says, now, do not be deceived, my brothers. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So we know that Satan now deceives, but the Greek word there for deceives is planao. But the idea is to be led astray. It's not as if we come to a point in temptation where now we've been deceived in something, we've fallen into that temptation, now the devil leads us, or the accuser or the enemy would leave us in that. The idea is that when he deceives, he comes alongside, he grabs us, and he just keeps on taking us. You see, this is okay, you can keep doing this, however he might spend lies in our minds is that he comes along and he leads astray. That's the idea with planao. In that type of deception. So metaphorically, it's to lead away from the truth and into error is the idea. 
It promises one thing, but delivers another always. In the enemy's deception, understand that he will almost always promise one thing, but he will deliver an entirely different thing. And we can take this all the way back to the garden. Did he not deceive Adam and Eve? Yes, he promised one thing, but something entirely different ultimately was delivered. And we have the effect of that particular deception. But now the father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, James says he gives good gifts to us. He doesn't give us temptation, but he's not the changing thing. That God the Father, he gives you and I promises, but we can rest assured in God's promises that they will always come to be. If he promises a thing, that thing will be the thing that is delivered to you and I. For God is unchanging. His word is unchanging. He says and he does according to what he says. The enemy is the one that deceives and lies and twists truth in a myriad of ways. Now verse 18 He says this of God. He says, of his own will. You can note that. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So what is deception, right? It is the opposite of truth. To deceive one is to lie to someone in some way. But here, the father of his own will has brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, we looked at that word last week of first fruits, of aparche. It means the first portion of the harvest. In the Old Testament, whenever uh, God instituted in the law that whenever the people would, would come to the season of harvest, the first fruits of that harvest would be given to the Lord. They would be uh, consecrated as sacred unto the Lord, is the idea with first fruits. But it can also convey another thing and convey a truth about people that there can be persons of superior excellence among others in the same class. Let me read that as I actually have that written. I think I butchered that one there. But it could be persons persons superior in excellence to others of the same class when it comes to first fruits. Now, what can that convey for us this morning? When we think of classes of people, we don't want to, we don't want to work through classes of people, but the reality is we're all the same class under heaven. You and I, as mankind, as men and women, as humanity, we are all broken, we're all sinful, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all the same class. But something happened. God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty with which you and I owe on that sin. He was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He conquered death. He paid our penalty. He paid that which we owed so that when we come to him and we put our faith in him, we are no longer among that class of people. If we are a kind of first fruits, we are first fruits and that we are now people that are superior in excellence to everyone else. So that's a reality within God's word that you and I as believers, if we are in Christ, you are excellent. You're not excellent because you are excellent. You're excellent because what God has done for you. And we are now superior. We are now above every other person on this planet that has not put their faith and trust in Christ. That's not meant to fill us up with pride or arrogance, as we'll see here in just a minute. But it is meant to help you and I understand if we are the first fruits. And God calls us excellent. He makes us excellent. That forms our identity. That should form who we are if we have that understanding of what God's word says about his people. 
Now note, he says now that you are a kind of first fruits. James is very intentional with his word uses throughout this letter. He says you're a kind of first fruits. First fruits have existed. There's the first fruit of the harvest, first fruit when it comes to bread and consecrating, giving things over there. But he says that kind of first fruits. How is this different? Whenever he writes to this church, recall who he's writing to. He's writing to Jewish believers in the first century before there's even any Christian doctrine or theology worked out. He tells them, you are a kind of first fruits. They're a kind of first fruits because they're a type of first fruits that has never existed on planet Earth to that point in time. They're first fruits in that they are now members of the way. They are now believers in Jesus Christ. They are now Christians. For the first time in human history, these people he's writing to are a kind of first fruits in that they are now superior and excellence to every other person on the planet simply because they put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior of their souls. So for you and I today, the same truth stands that we are a kind of first fruits. We are set apart. That is our identity. You and I in Christ can rest on that truth alone right there. That we are excellent because of what Christ has done. But we must remember that he has brought us forth. It is according to his will that he brought us forth according to the word of truth that we would be this thing that we are. First fruits. And then they then that he wrote to in the first century, they carry that truth forward. The word of truth that they received, they received that word from the apostles' teaching. The apostles received that word of truth from the truth, Jesus Christ, who told his disciples who become apostles. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the word of truth is what Jesus said to his apostles. The apostles convey that to people. And then eventually you get the writing of the New Testament. It forms the word that we have today. But it was carried forward by them. 2,000 later, it still remains the same for the believer in Christ as we carry forward the word of truth. The way you and I here today understand our standing before the Lord that we are first fruits is because they conveyed that truth. Over hundreds of years, thousands of years, they conveyed the same truth to you and I. So from this point in human history, what we do is we take that same word of truth and we carry it forward to generations to come. But in order to do that, James says, therefore, we have to do something. There's something on our side of things. If we understand our identity, he says, therefore, the natural progression of this thought is verse 21. So that was verse 18. This is verse 21. Now you say, uh, well, verse 19 and 20. We talked about that last week. But you can, you can look at verses 19 and 20 and this is kind of a parenthetical you know, you're, you, uh, you're, you're reading a sentence that conveys a thought, and then all of a sudden there's this parenthesis, right? That's a thought inside of it that's kind of an aside. Not to lessen that, but the natural progression of this would go. Of his own will, he brought us forth from, by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. If that is true, therefore, verse 21, he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So James says, this is your identity. This is who you are. This is what the Father of lights has done. No variation, no shadow due to change. By his own will, he's brought you forth by the word of truth. He's called you to be this. If that is true, therefore then, James says, put away. The idea there in the Greek is to cast off or take off. 
It's like taking off a garment, but it's in the aorist tense, the verb is, and it means that it carries the idea that we never put it back on. We take off a thing and it remains off. There's no sense in which that goes back on you and I. If our identity is this, we've been changed from that. You take that off and it never goes back on. And that is filthiness. It is rampant wickedness. Why are we superior in excellence? Amongst the same class of people because we're no longer covered in filth and in wickedness. We take that garment off. And then he says we receive. The second imperative there is to receive. Dekomai. Which is to receive favorably. It's to embrace this thing that's been given to us. It's to approve it. It's not to reject it. Rejection means we haven't accepted it. Right? A gift can be given but it can also be rejected. In this sense, he says to receive, accept that that's been given to you. What is it? It's the implanted word. He says we receive it, importantly here, with meekness. Because if we think through our identity, and if we settle our hearts on that, yeah, yes, we are superior now because of Christ. That can fill us with pride, arrogance. This is where the self-righteous person comes along. This is where the Pharisee exists. This is where the churchgoer can exist right here because I'm called out of darkness into his marvelous light and now all of a sudden I'm better than you. It's not what he says. He says you should receive, accept his implanted word, but you do it with meekness, with humility. The way we accept that with humility is we understand what we came from. If we're superior amongst the same class of people, if all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, guess what? At one point in time, we were those that fell short of the glory of God, but Based on his goodness, his mercy, and his grace, our chains are gone. We've been set free. Amen and amen and amen and amen. But that doesn't produce arrogance in us. It should produce humility. That we come before the Lord with humble hearts and accepting the implanted word that he's given us. Now, what is the implanted word? The idea is there, it's kind of like something within nature that it's been sown into the ground in some way, and then it will bring forth fruit of some kind but we can go back and look at some of what a couple of the prophets said of what would come Jeremiah verse 31 and, or chapter 31 verse 33 the prophet says this the Lord says this through the prophet for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord I will put my law within them I will write it on their hearts Ezekiel he says in verse thir- in chapter 36 26 and 27, he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see what God promises? Hundreds of years ago, the old covenant was was not meant to save It was meant to point to a new covenant in which God would say, you cannot physically, you cannot do these things that are required of you that will bring you to salvation. So a day is coming where I'm going to put my law within you. I'm going to give you my very spirit and then he will give you the ability to walk in my statutes and carefully obey my rules. The things that I require of you, you cannot do on your own, but a day is coming that I'm going to give you the ability. I'm going to implant my word within you. But James says to accept that. 
And then it is able to save our souls. The view is to a future salvation. Does that mean you're not saved today? No. If we come to Christ, we're justified by faith. We are made right in the moment at salvation or at conversion. But salvation is to come, right? Judgment is coming from the Lord. We are saved from that judgment because of what Christ has done and what we've received. Ephesians 1, uh, Paul says this in 13 and 14. He says, in him, Jesus... He says, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, writing several years later from when James writes. Now, same phrase, Paul says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed. Very important distinction that we're going to get to here in a minute. At one point in time, you heard the word of truth, which is the gospel, and you believed in him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So salvation becomes a future event, but justification happens in the moment when we hear the word of truth and we respond to that with faith and belief. You and I are sealed by the Holy Spirit that has been placed now within us. And there is an acceptance that James says you and I are to do. We're to approve of it. We're to embrace it. We are not to reject it. But, verse 22, the thrust of James's argument thus far leads us right here to verse 22. If all those things are true, God has done all these things for us. It is incumbent upon the believer then to respond in obedience to what he's done. But, James says, but be doers of the word... And not hearers only, what? Deceiving yourselves. So who now becomes the deceiver? Who's deceiving who? In this particular case, it's not the enemy that deceives you. We deceive ourselves. If we receive, if we hear this word, this word of truth, if we hear this gospel and we don't accept it, we don't embrace it, we merely hear it, James says you're deceiving yourself. What are we deceiving ourselves of? Namely, it's going to be our standing before the Lord. The idea this morning isn't simply to make everyone in this room question your salvation, but it is from James's text as he's saying to the early church, there's something that should happen. If we understand our identity, who we are in Christ, what he's done for us, it should prompt in us a change in some way. We should be hearers of the word, but we should also be doers of the word. If we're not Satan is not the one deceiving you. You're deceiving yourself. Now the word for deceiving yourselves is an entirely different word than what he used in verse 16. In verse 16 it was planao, which is to be led astray. Here the word for deceiving is paralogizomai, and it means to cheat by false reasoning. And it's not something the enemy does. It's something that you and I do. We falsely reason ourselves into thinking something that is not true and so deceive ourselves. This is one of two times in the New Testament that this word is used as far as deception. The second is in Colossians 2.4. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude or paralgizomai you with plausible arguments. There he warns about false teachers who deceive people by fine-sounding arguments. Now, I can stand here and I can confess to you and I can share with you 
Not examples, which I probably could have sat down and thought, but I cannot count how many times throughout my life I have justified sinful behavior by a fine-sounding argument with myself. I have deceived myself in doing and saying things that I knew were contrary to God's word. In many ways, that is a rejection of an implanted word within me by fine-sounding argument. I justify what I'm doing. Many of you may be able to relate with that, if not all of us in this room. But I can tell you, I can make things sound good for myself. But in so doing, I'm deceiving myself and I'm rejecting the word that has been implanted in me. So the context is clear that to be deceived in such a way is to be blinded to one's actual religious state. Which Paul unpacks in verses 26 and 27 when we get there. Is we falsely believe that our standing with the Lord is such that we're good when we couldn't be further from good. Because we've deceived ourselves. We've heard and never done. But we think that we're okay. So we don't cheat yourself. James is saying, don't cheat yourselves by foolishly thinking that merely hearing the gospel over and over, possibly multiple times or countless times over a lifetime, that it puts you in right standing before the Lord. To pull it out of that context and put it where we're at today, the idea is is just because we show up on a Sunday morning and we hear the word of God does not mean as if we're in right standing before God. Take it from what Matthew says. Or not Matthew, but yes, Matthew. But Jesus says in Matthew 7. He says in verse 24, he says, Now everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. We looked at that in chapter, in, in week one. Verse 26, he says, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Jesus says that when the rains came and the winds blew as we looked at, that the wise man who built his house on the rock, on Jesus Christ, the truth, and they were doer of that word, their house stood and it remained regardless of what came against it. But the foolish man's house fell. And Jesus says, And mighty was its fall. I think through, why did Jesus add that on the end of that exhortation? Why did he say, and mighty was its fall? It was mighty in its fall because what we're prone to do is we can, as a child, make a profession of faith, either through our own fault or the fault of someone else and not discipling us or never really getting to the word, but we can make a profession of faith, but never do anything with the word which, which we've been given. We can deceive ourselves for an entire lifetime and we build our lives around that lie, around that deception. And mighty is its fall because all of that comes crashing down. An entire life falls down around us. And that's either going to happen in the end when we stand before the Lord. And as Jesus said, many are going to say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do this in your name and that in your name? And he's going to say, away from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I did not know you. And then mighty will be the fall of that house. But say under heaven, before Jesus' return, before the day of our death, say, Say someone comes to a point where they built their entire life around these lies, around the deception that they're good before the Lord and then something happens in their life and the rains do come and the winds do come and mighty is the fall of that house and it turns that person's mind and gaze back to the Lord and they return. I say praise the Lord for the destruction of such a lie. 
The church, we should be so careful. That's not a lie from the enemy. We deceive ourselves. Why would the enemy try and do anything in our life? If we're that self-deceived, we're in his camp. Why would he do anything to make his presence known at all? If we are that self-deceived, he's going to leave you alone. If you're, if you're living your life in such a way where you never experience any kind of persecution, any sort of really trial, any oppression from this world in any way, maybe take a thought. Why am I not experiencing things that God's word promised me I'm going to experience if I'm really a believer in Christ? Probably because you don't know what his word says. But if we're showing up in and out, week in and week out, and we're hearers but not doers, we're deceiving ourselves. So doing becomes the determining factor for whether we have accepted or merely heard. To accept it means to do it. Now this is all a point that James will return to in chapter 2, verse 14 and following. In two weeks, we're going to come back to this. In some ways, this is part A to that part B. But for now, James illustrates his point this way in verse 23. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So here you have this illustration, a contrast between two people. You have a contrast between the wise and the foolish. So the foolish man, he says, looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. Natural face being he looks intently at himself in the mirror. But the words he uses for looks, again, James uses his words very carefully. The word in the Greek for looks intently is different from the other man who looks into the perfect law. We'll get to that one here in just a second. But looks intently in verse 23 and 24 is katanoeo. And this word means to consider attentively. It means to fix one's eyes and mind upon a thing. So the idea is this person, he's looking at himself in the mirror. He's attentive to himself in the mirror. He's, his mind is taking in what he looks like in this mirror. But the foolishness comes when he walks away and completely forgets all that, is the idea. But the wise man, he says, looks. This is paracupto. And this word literally means to stoop down. So why is James using a word that means to stoop down to convey looking into the perfect law of liberty? I had to, look, I had to find it elsewhere in the New Testament how it is used to help understand this truth. But to me it is quite profound if you will track me on this. John chapter 20, verse 4 and 5 and then verse 8. I don't have this for you, but just follow me on it. At this point in time, this is, um, this is Resurrection Sunday. This is the day in which uh, Christ is raised from the dead. And John is giving this an account of when they came to the tomb. Now he says in verse 4 of John 20, he says, Both of them were running together. That's John and Peter were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John outruns Peter, gets to the tomb first. But note this in verse 5, And stooping to look, look in. And paracupto. So the picture here is he looked in, he's stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. 
So the word parakupto means to stoop down, but it's to stoop down and to look. So I imagine John and Peter running to the tomb. They've just heard Jesus is resurrected from the dead. They think all is lost at this point. Their savior, their leader, their teacher has died. But then all of a sudden they hear he's raised from the dead. The tomb is empty. What? So they take off running. And John beats Peter there, but John gets to the tomb. And as he approaches the tomb, he doesn't just run into the tomb. He approaches the tomb and he stoops down. And he looks in. What does James say? That the wise man does. The wise man stoops down and perseveres. He continues the word literally means there for perseveres in James's writing that it is to abide. The idea is that we run to a thing, we stoop down, we look, and we remain right there. What are we looking into? We're looking into the perfect law, the law of liberty. Now, why does he say law? He's been saying word of truth thus far, and all of a sudden James switches, and now he says law. But he says the perfect law. The word for perfect is not It's not perfect in that it's sinless or not broken or spotless. The word there is one of completeness. As we looked at in each one, it's finished. We look into the perfect, complete law, the law of liberty, that that sets us free. When it's Jesus that said, I have come not not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, to set it, to set it complete in me. And then Jesus came to set the captives free. We find freedom in Christ. My chains are gone. I've been set free. That is in Christ. It is the truth that the wise man comes, stoops down, and he looks into this, and he remains there. He stays there. He continues to look. He's not like the foolish man who observes himself and walks away and forgets. The main difference between these two men in James' illustration is that one forgets and one abides. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I abide in you or my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If we are hearers only, like a foolish man who looks in his mirror and walks away and does nothing, the idea that Jesus conveys is that we're not remaining with him. And therefore, we can do nothing. That's what James says. He says, there's nothing you can do. You've deceived yourself. But if we would remain, then we would not be a hearer who forgets, James says, but a doer who acts, and then he will be blessed in his doing. You and I, every one of us, want to be blessed in the things that we decide to do, and we do a lot of things, amen? 2023, we do a lot of things. I think of my calendar right now. I do a lot of things. I have a lot of things scheduled. Within those scheduled things, I do things. I do things on top of things. And it can be overwhelming to think, what are, how, how, how do I do this? I take the word, I hear the word. I don't want to just be here. I want to do the word as well. Does that mean I have to know all the word in which is said to me that I hear in order to do the thing? No. You just have to abide. The things that we do they, became, they become eternal things, eternal value things whenever we do those things and we run them through the filter of God's word in our lives. But we have to not just hear and forget. We have to hear and begin to do. So one man is attentive, but one man is taking it all in. 
One is standing in front of and observing. Another one approaches, bends down, and looks into, perseveres, continues on. So acceptance of the word should prompt an obedience to it. Not a disregard for it. I think too often we can become complacent in our walk with the Lord. We can come to a place where weekly we come to church and we sit and we hear and we can intently listen. We can intently observe. We can have our Bibles open. We can mark things up. We can become smarter Christians, but yet we can walk away and do nothing with what we have received. So James doesn't just get all up in our space around this without giving us some teaching with how we can begin to do. So in verses 26 and 27, right here, James gives us three applications of obedience. And he's going to return to all three of these throughout his letter in much greater detail. But verse 26, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart... Note the same word deceives. Again, this person's religion is worthless. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So in many ways, you can read this list of things and we could probably come away if we're not really going further with it. All right, I've just got three things to do here. If I want to do the word, just mind my tongue, take care of some widows and orphans. I don't know any widows and orphans. Maybe I need to get to know some in order for me to do the word. And then be unstained from the world. Seems easy. But yet he's about to take the entirety of this letter to unpack those things for you and I. But that doesn't form for us. It's important to note. We do these three things and then we're good. That's not the idea. We don't cast off the rest of New Testament teaching. But Paul, but James gives us some clear things that we can begin to do. So one is we should be controlling the tongue. A little less talk and a lot more action. If you remember from verse 19, he says we should be quick to listen, slow to speak. Why? The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God is what he says. A lot of times in our trial and our suffering, we can get frustrated, we can get angry. In our anger, what comes out? Bam. At least that's been my struggle. I don't know about you guys. But we should bridle the tongue. Let's hold it in check like a bridle or a bit in the horse of a mouth. Ma- <laughs> almost said mouth of a horse. There we go. Yeah. A bridle or a bit in the mouth of a horse. And you hold on to the reins and you control that animal. The strength and the power of that animal is holding on and bridling its power. That is the idea with our tongue is we should bridle it. And if we don't, without which, he says, we deceive. We deceive our hearts is what he says. James might not have believed in his brother early on. But it seems as if he really paid attention to some of his teaching. In Luke chapter 6 verse 45, Jesus says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Then he says these words, and many of us have heard it. But for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So we're deceiving ourselves when we're hearers only and not doing. But if we're not controlling our tongue, we're deceiving our heart. 
And then secondly, he says, our religion is worthless. The word for religion there uses, it's used four times in the New Testament. And each use in the general sense conveys worship of a God. So in this case, whenever James says religion is worthless, it's your worship of God is worthless is what he's getting at. So think through this with me. If, if the mouth speaks now filthiness and rampant wickedness, if we're not putting off the old self, it means that we're just hearers only, not doers. So we're still leaving that filthy garment on us. But if our mouth is speaking those things according to Jesus, what does that say about our heart? That our heart is filthy and wicked. And where should true worship come from? It should come from our hearts. For James says, if, if our hearts, if our mouth are speaking things that are impure and unclean, if we're lashing out in frustration or anger, whatever it may be, he says, bridle your tongue. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we give ourselves away. So we should be worshiping from a pure heart. Not having worthless worship or religion, but pure. That's why he says in, in 27, he says the first part of it, he says now, religion that is pure and undefiled before the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So what is pure worship of God? It's to visit the helpless. What is the thing that, the wor- that, 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 that orphans and widows can have in common? It's, it's helplessness. They need help. Old Testament teaching is replete with examples of God the Father being a father to the fatherless, instructing his people to take care of widows and the helpless. And he says, James, drawing on that teaching, because we don't have New Testament theology just yet, he's just taking them back to what the law may say and how we should be responding, but how we should be serving people. That's the idea that we can take away from it today. Yes, we need to take care of orphans and widows specifically, Help the helpless, but we should be serving one another. So number two is we should have concern for the helpless and the way we serve one another. Chapter two, at the beginning of chapter two next week, he's going to begin to unpack that specific thing. But the third thing that he says there is he should, in 27b, he says, keep oneself unstained from the world. So we should have a caution against worldliness. So we should be controlling the tongue. We should have concern for the helpless. We should caution against worldliness. The, un, the word for unstained there means spotless, without blemish, irreproachable. We're living in such a way according to God's word that no one can come and lay a reproach against you and I because we're acting on the righteousness with, with, which, we, with which we've been given. That doesn't mean people aren't going to lie about us. Because they don't know God's word. But if we're acting according to God's word, there's no true reproach that should be able to be brought against us. We should be spotless, unstained from the world. So again, we do a lot of things, but James says we need to make sure we're doing a lot of things differently than what the world does. He says that proper worship is serving others and not letting this world define who you are and how we should be serving or doing. Which is interesting that the Apostle Paul roughly 10 years later, writes these words to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We should be living sacrificial lives for and on behalf of God. The way we do that on behalf of God is through our service to other people. 
The way we help the helpless is we serve them right where they're at. That is us being a living sacrifice. And he says, holy and acceptable to God is what Paul says, which is your spiritual worship. What did Paul say is worthless if we can't simply bridle our tongue? Our religion, our worship. Paul says our spiritual worship is being a sacrifice and serving other people. The way we can practically begin to do what James is laying out for us here to have worship that is pure and undefiled is that we start serving sacrificially those that are around us and we will find ourselves purely worshiping the Lord. And then Paul says this in verse 2 to, in Romans 12. He says, now do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewal of your mind. James says, keep oneself unstained from this world. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. The way we Absolve ourselves from that conformity is when we hear the word and we do the word. And as Jesus says, remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. The fruit that you and I bear becomes the doing of what the word of truth tells us. God said, a day is coming, I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to put my word within you. You can't do these things that I need you to do in order for you to be with me as I want you to be with me. So I'm going to give you the ability to do it. I'm going to give you my very spirit. I'm going to give you my word. I'm going to give you my truth. I'm going to give you all of it. I'm going to put it inside of you. But if you reject it, you've rejected me. And I'm going to let you decide to do it. That's the most loving thing that God could do with us. But let us have that understanding of who we are in Christ as believers, as members of the way, as Christ followers, as Christians. By golly, that name is tainted. It is tainted in our culture. Because they don't believe the truth of who we are because we don't act like who we are. I don't. I made a mockery of Christianity for a long time in my life. And I want to be set apart. But I need God's help to do it, but I don't want to walk away hearing and deceiving myself because I'm capable of it. I want to understand who God is. I want to understand he's sitting on a throne in heaven in glory. Right now, there are angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty all over again, again and again and again because they understand who he is because they're in his presence. He's given me his presence. He's given you his presence. The way we understand that is we go and we hear his word and we do his word. But may we not make a mockery of it. Let us not in arrogance and in pride because we've been in church all our lives say, hey, me and the man upstairs got an understanding. If that's your understanding of who God is, you have no understanding because he's not a man upstairs. He's God of the universe. And he's done everything for you and I to be set free. There are many men, there's some 40 men. They're with me at man camp and they know. The difference this has to make in our hearts, the only way we change our lives, our families, our communities, is if it makes a difference in you and I. Awake, O oh sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. How does a mirror clearly reflect anything 
as if there's light. And if Christ shines upon us, he becomes the mirror with which we see ourselves. And if we see ourselves in such a way, we will not walk away and forget if we are impacted and we've accepted what he's implanted in us. And I pray that's what we begin to do, church. Radical things will begin to happen in your life if you do that thing. I think that's, that's, that's all the Lord has for us this morning. But I pray that it moves us. If you would like to talk about what moving looks like, maybe you're in this room and you made a profession of faith at one point, but you've never acted upon the faith with which you proclaimed. You've been a hearer all your life, but you've never been a doer. If that's you and you want to know how to begin moving forward, please come find me. Shoot me an email this week, cody.king at stonepointchurch.com. I would love to have a conversation about what it looks like to begin to move forward. Maybe you're here and at one point in time you did. You heard the word, you began to do the word, but somewhere along the way in your life you stopped doing the word. You know what you can do today? Start doing it. It's, it's as simple as that. If we've been impacted, if we have the implanted word, we have his spirit, we can at a moment turn our eyes to him and say, God, I have messed up. Would you help me? Adjust my way, and I promise he will meet you in that moment and help you adjust your way. And maybe you're here this morning and you have never done that. Maybe you're here this morning and you hear this word and you want to begin to do this word. For the first time in your life, you're hearing and you want to begin to do for the salvation of your soul. F find somebody you know. Find a Christian. You can come, come to me. Don't wait another moment to hear and respond so that your identity may change. You be, be, will become a kind of first fruit set apart from everything else. And Christ's light may shine in you. What a wonderful truth. And I pray that we realize it, understand it, and we act upon it. Amen. All right, I love you, church. Let me pray for us. And, uh, and we'll sing another song together. Lord, I thank you for this morning. And, Or just the, the exhortation and, and also the admonishment of your word, Lord, that by your grace and your mercy, Lord, you, you point out our flaws. You point out our, our need for you, our utter depravity and brokenness, Lord. No one comes to you, Lord. Your word says no one seeks for you, no one understands, no one is righteous, no, not one. But you knowing that make a way. You implant your truth, Lord, within us. And I pray, Lord, that we understand, Lord, and come to terms with how to accept it and what acceptance looks like and embracing that, Lord, and learning how to do it, Lord. And I know we'll talk about that more. I know as we continue on in this study, Lord, I pray that this morning no one is, is scared to come back but I pray that you help us to unpack and develop your truth, Lord, that it impacts our lives in such a way that we can't do anything except do what it says. That we would not be a hearer who forgets, but a doer who does and does things for your glory, for the good of those around us, 
so that you're glorified, we're edified, that lasting change can be able to happen, Lord. And it doesn't happen on a national level until it happens on an individual level. And I pray that for my own heart. We love you and we thank you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.